Good morning, Cry Out family, and blessings and love to you all. Before we get into the message, I want to announce that we will begin our in-car church services in our church parking lot on Sunday, April 4th. That's Sunday, April 4th. That's Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. Write that down, April 4th, Sunday, April 4th at 10 a.m. Also, I want to let you know that we will still provide the online service for those of you who do not feel comfortable attending the outdoor service. Now, because of the policies and, and guidelines, our restrooms will not be available for use. And also, we ask that you remain in your vehicles throughout the entire service. We want to be good citizens and follow the protocols. Now, I realize this is not the same as meeting in the sanctuary. I get that, but it's a step forward. So I'm so excited about this, and I'm really excited to see you all there. So write that down again, April 4th at 10 a.m. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 5 today. Chapter 5 is today's text, the whole chapter. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're now in part 11, part 11 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was chapter 4, verses 6 to 21. And the focus of the text was on pride. Remember that pride? And pride was an issue in the Corinthian church, and they were puffed up, and, and they were proud. And so Paul confronts them on their prideful attitudes, their prideful hearts. In verses 6 to 8, uh, verses 6 to 8, Paul points out the contrast between pride, between pride and humble service. And then in verses 8 through 13, he points out the contrast between self-exalting service and sacrificial living. Paul then corrects them. Verse 14, let's look at verse 14. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. So he tenderly warns and admonishes them. And it's what a father does in hopes that his children will see uh, the, the error of their ways and, and change. Now remember the word in the text carries the idea of, of having a corrective influence on someone while not provoking or embittering. It implies counsel and appeal. And so Paul's desire isn't to criticize and punish, but to admonish, correct, and to encourage. And as a spiritual father, he has the right, the right to lovingly discipline them. And he's not correcting them and doing this because he's mad at them, but because he cares for them and because Paul loves them. He loves them as a father. And just as a good father, he sought to correct them, and not just to correct them, but also to set the example uh, to them of how to live for Christ. Look at verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me, he says, to imitate me. In other words, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so he taught not only by his words, but also by his walk. And that's what I love about Paul. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. For this reason I have sent you... Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Listen to what he says, Paul writes. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees, love that, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Verses 18 and 19, let's get that. Some of you have become arrogant, in other words, puffed up, as if I were not coming to you. So some of the Corinthian Christians, believers, were so arrogant that that they thought Paul was afraid to visit them. Well, look at verse 19. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Why did Paul say this? Paul says because he's, Paul's simply saying, hey, talk is what? Talk is cheap, right? And Paul's looking at their lives. And he's saying the power isn't there. 
And whatever power you claim to have is, is human. It's not spiritual. It's carnal. It's manifesting itself in carnality. Look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, I love that, but, a, but of power. But of power. Say power. Well, what does that look like? Well, we learned last week that it's a transformed life, right? It's a transformed life. Paul then, what he does, he concludes this part with a strong confronting challenge. Look at verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Hmm? So he leaves the ball in their court. And, and, and Paul's saying, which Paul do you want? It's up to you guys. Which Paul do you want? Do you want the tough Paul or the tender Paul? Do you want the Paul that comes with a, a, corrective, uh, a rod of correction or the Paul with the spirit of gentleness? Which Paul do you want? It's up to you. The ball's in your cord, so he leaves that decision to them. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message is Discipline in God's House. Everyone say that, Discipline in God's House. Now, in the first four chapters, Paul introduces the shameful problem in the church, which was what? Pride. And we have seen that the Corinthian believers were proudly attaching themselves to certain leaders, creating cliques, factions, fan clubs, and, and groupies that were undermining, that were threatening the unity of the church. Now, here in this chapter, Paul calls attention to another problem plaguing the church, which is immorality. Immorality. Listen, friends, this chapter is not just about the immorality of one church member, but also about the pride and passivity, passivity of the entire church in response to this one church member. Four points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this, the problem. The problem. Write that down and say the problem. Because here, Paul, what he does, he addresses the immediate problem of sin within the church, the body of Christ. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. I want to stop there. I want to stop there, okay? So news reaches Paul of immorality, immorality, excuse me, in the church. Now, this wasn't a matter of a rumor or hearsay, but a matter that was that, that is actually reported, right? It is actually reported, he says. And not only reported, but in an ongoing way. It was happening in an ongoing way. It was common knowledge in the whole church that there was a particular incident of sexual immorality in their fellowship. Now, the term sexual immorality is the ancient Greek word pornea, in which our word pornography comes from. And what it does, it broadly, it broadly refers to all types of sexual improprieties, such as adultery, uh, fornication, homosexuality, and bestiality. And, and a simple definition would be sex outside of marriage. Because we know, right, as Christians, that God's Word says that marriage is between one man, right, and one woman. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. And you see, God's perspective, you got to get this, God's perspective, okay, from God's perspective, excuse me, from God's perspective, any sexual relationship outside of the sanctity of marriage is pornographic. In other words, it's sin. It's sin. Let's read on. And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, a man has, his father has, has his father's wife. Now notice the word has there, okay? It, it, it indicates that the sin is still going on as Paul writes. Now listen, not only was this man having sexual relations outside of, of wedlock, he was doing so with a woman who was his father's wife. Most people believe it was his stepmother. 
He was committing incest. In the Old Testament, such behavior was considered to be incest, even though the man and the woman were not biologically related. You see, the fact that she was his father's wife made her a part of his family, and any kind of sexual relationship with a family member is incest. Now listen, even the pagan, you got to get this, right? Even the pagan people of Corinth wouldn't be doing this. Even the non-believers wouldn't be doing this. Look at the text. And of any kind, and of a kind, excuse me, that does not occur even among pagans. The laws of their own Greek society forbid insensuous relations with one's natural or stepmother. And this kind of behavior was frowned, was frowned upon non-believers. It was considered taboo to them. Now, whether or not the father is alive, we don't know. It's unclear, and neither are we told that the woman is a professing Christian. Uh, but we can assume that she's not, because as we read uh, further in the text, we see that Paul doesn't instruct the church to cast her out, but only to cast the man out. Look at verse 2a. And you are proud. And you are proud. Going back to them being, what, prideful? See, they, they prided themselves, get this now, they prided themselves on how understanding and tolerant they were. I'm going to say that again. They, pri they prided themselves on how understanding and tolerant they were. Now, friends, although tolerance might be the standard in today's politically correct climate, listen, to tolerate blatant sin, to tolerate blatant sin in our midst is to be in sin ourselves. We are not to tolerate sin. As believers, we are not to tolerate sin. In fact, Jesus, in writing to the church at Thyatira, said this in Revelation 2.20. Write that down. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So Jesus rebuked them, the church of Thyatira, for tolerating sin in their midst. And friends, this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's rebuking the Corinthian church for pridefully and boastfully tolerating sin in their fellowship. And, and you know, friends, Paul seems to be as much or more concerned about the Corinthians' attitude about this sin of incest than he is of the sin itself. And, and, and Paul is like, man, I need to say something about this. This is wrong. I need to say something about this. Well, listen to what he says. Look at verse 2b. Verse 2b. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So Paul not only exposes the man's sin, but also exposes the, the, the church's sin, the sin of refusing to discipline this man. And we can see that Paul is very, very distressed by the sin of this one man, but he's even more disturbed disturbed by the sinful response of the church. They have become arrogant, prideful, and at the same time are virtually doing nothing whatsoever to correct the man, to correct the sin. And you see, friends, the Corinthian church was in, into permitting rather than confronting. 
And they actually thought they were showing love and and understanding by their tolerance of this sin. And to them, a casual approach to to sexual immorality would cause less hurt and allow friendships to be kept. They didn't want to rock the boat. They were being cool and progressive rather than biblical. In fact, I could almost hear them saying, what harm is there in a a little premarital sex or in a little casual extramarital affair? I mean, is it so bad that that this man sleeping with his stepmother, especially if they love each other? I mean, after all, as Christians, aren't aren't we commanded to love one another and to not judge others? Well, yes, we are called to love one another, but we're also called not to tolerate sin. In fact, friends, as Christians, we are to judge. And I'll expound on that later on in the text. So Paul describes the attitude of the Corinthians as being what? Arrogant, right? Their arrogance, arrogance, was partially to blame for their not acting or taking action, excuse me, taking action to remove the sin. Listen, they should have been mourning. Paul says, you should have been brokenhearted. They should have been brokenhearted that the situation was an ugly stain upon their witness in the world and horribly grievous to God. You see, by tolerating this sexual immorality, they were indirectly participating in it. Now look at the text. Let's look at the text again. And have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. So Paul's like, man, you guys aren't aren't even exercising church discipline. You're not even doing that. And if you did, it was done superficially. There's no real action here. You guys are being a bunch of sissy lalas, and this guy obviously hasn't been removed from the fellowship. And and, and we're going to look more into this in the second point. But there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. The lesson is this, and get this. Take sin seriously. Write that down. Take sin seriously. Friends, as believers, we need to realize that God's church, that the body of Christ must be carefully guarded and kept pure and untainted from the sins of the world around us. Friends, when there is substantial sin that is continuing in our lives, we must deal with it immediately and not sleep until it's removed. Not sleep until it's removed. David Pryor said this, The world is waiting to see such a church a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. I love that. Hey, you know why the church, why the church's attitude towards sin is important? You know why? I'll tell you why. Because either we destroy sin or sin will destroy us. So Paul addresses the immediate problem of sin within the church, right? And now he deals with the problem, and the problem demanded discipline, which brings us to point number two, is the process. Say that, the process. First, the problem, point number two is the process. Write that down, say that, the process. Look at verse three with me. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And notice what Paul says. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Paul judges the situation simply by what the Word of God says. 
He doesn't ask for the church bylaws, for church traditions, or for church constitutions. He just judges according to what God's word says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, Paul writes this, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. And that's what Paul did. He made a sound judgment based on God's word and the facts, and the facts. He was using his apostolic office and authority. He judged. That's what Paul did. He judged. And the Corinthian believers were to comply with his declaration by carrying out the discipline on this man. And he told him what to do to follow the process for implementing church discipline. Verse 4. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So, so Paul imagines himself in the presence of the Corinthian church conducting church discipline on this man guilty of incest. And obviously, Paul saw that the elders weren't taking any action. And so he, present in spirit, okay, takes charge over this matter. Look at the text again. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus. I'm going to say, I'm going to read that again. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul's saying here that all church discipline is exercised in the name, in the authority of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the church. Got it? Listen, discipline is not just a group of elders making judgments. It's action taken in the power and authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of the text. It says, in the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Verse 5a, verse 5a. Hand this man over to Satan. What does that mean? That means this now. That means to exclude him from the fellowship. Back in verse 2, remember back in verse 2, Paul says you should have put this man out of your fellowship. Now, now keep in mind here, keep in mind here, this is the final step of church discipline. I'm going to say it again. This is the final step of church discipline. Discipline, and it's given in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you, listen to what he says, be to you like a heathen, a non-believer, and a tax collector. Treat him that way. And this is the method Jesus dictated for the church to practice. And this is the most extreme type of discipline a local church can give a professing Christian in sin who refuses to repent. So at this point, this man had been warned of his sin by another brother or sister in Christ, and then by the elders, and then finally by some kind of public rebuke, the last step in the disciplinary, disciplinary process. So obviously this man didn't submit himself to church discipline. So this is why this is why Paul tells him to remove or to exclude or to excommunicate this man from their fellowship. This is why he says to deliver him to Satan. 
Now, this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't the only time Paul would do this. Later on, he would write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where he writes, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience with some which, which, excuse me, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You see, the unrepentant Christian, while in Satan's realm, will find himself or herself miserable, sensing that they cannot live, listen now, without the fellowship of God's people. Now I want you to get this. A true Christian, keyword true, a true Christian will truly repent when excluded or excommunicated from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Now listen, if he or she does not repent, doesn't, doesn't repent, period, friends, then that simply proves that they were never in Christ's kingdom and, and was always in Satan's power. It proves that they, listen now, that they were never saved in the first place. Now look at verse 5b. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed. This probably refers to the destruction of the, of the fleshly nature or the acts of carnality which causes man conditions so, uh, so he may repent. This could, could and probably does include bodily discipline from Satan as well. God could even use the devil, Satan himself, to sanctify a believer. God can use anything or anyone to sanctify a believer to get the believer's attention and to sanctify them. You see, the goal of the church, the goal of church discipline is that they would come to an end of themselves. That's the goal. And the idea is to let them loose, uh, to go stuff themselves with sin, knowing that they'll finally hit rock bottom and hopefully they'll finally realize that this didn't fulfill them at all, but actually and eventually made them feel worse. So that, listen now, so that they would come to their senses and repent. Kind of like the prodigal son. Look at verse 5c. Verse 5c. And his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So this is what church discipline is all about, friends. It's to teach people to do the right thing, to be restored back to fellowship with God and his church. And you see what Paul, and Paul's saying here, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul wanted to see, when he's saying that, he's meaning this. Paul wanted to see this man demonstrating the reality of his salvation so that on judgment day, he would be accepted by Christ. Got it? By Christ. So then, in other words, if this man did come back and repent and was restored, that means he's demonstrating the reality of his salvation, that he truly is saved. Now, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. The lesson is this. Tough love. Say that. Tough love. Tough love. Listen, sometimes, let's be honest, we have the mindset that if we love someone, then we let them do whatever they want. And we just have to put up with it. Listen, the whole reason for this disfellowshipping, the whole reason for excommunication is restoration. Restoration. So that they, listen, so that they'll, they'll come to the knowledge of their sin and repent and, 
and eventually, listen now, be restored to the fellowship of God and to the fellowship of God's people. It's not punitive, it's restorative. Got it? In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, write that down, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, tells us that this man, this man that was committing the sin of incest, eventually repented and came back. He needed forgiveness, acceptance, and comfort. So the goal of excommunication is restoration. Got it? It's restoration. So the problem, and then we just saw the process of truth discipline. And number three is the purpose. The purpose, write that down, say the purpose. The purpose of church discipline. So what Paul does, he lays out the purpose of church discipline, and this is the purpose. It's to guard the purity of the church and to prevent sin from spreading. It's to guard the purity of the church and to prevent sin from spreading. Look at verse 6 with me, verse 6. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good, okay? Stop your boasting. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So we know that yeast or leaven is a picture or a metaphor of sin, right? It's a picture, a metaphor of sin, or a picture, a metaphor of evil influence. And there's four reasons why. First reason is this. It's small but powerful. And that's the way sin is. It's small. Sin is small, but it's powerful. The second reason is this. It works secretly. It works secretly. And that's the way sin works. It works very secretly. The third reason is this. It puffs up the dough. It puffs up the dough. In other words, it makes people puff up with pride. And that's what sin does. It makes us puff up with pride. And the fourth reason is this. It spreads. It spreads. That's what sin does. Sin spreads rapidly. And Paul is simply saying a little, a little of yeast or leaven, which referring to the man's sin, works through the whole congregation. A small part affects the whole. As one drop of contaminated water spoils a cup of clean water, as one bad tooth affects your whole body, as a drop of poison to your whole bloodstream. So one saint, one believer at cry out can corrupt our whole congregation. A little sin contaminates the whole assembly. One spoiled, one bad apple can cause the whole barrel to rot. And Paul is saying by keeping this insensuous adulterer in the local church, the whole church could be infested with sexual immorality because sin spreads like wildfire. And it must be stopped to protect the congregation, to protect the body of Christ. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, we that are a part of the body of Christ directly affect each other for good or for bad, for good or for bad. So if there is continual, habitual sin in our lives, we must deal with it immediately and get rid of it. Which brings us right to verse 7. Paul writes, Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast. I want to stop there. Day one of the Passover feast, the Jews would light a candle. They would light a candle and search the house, the whole house, 
the whole house, everywhere, even the cracks in the house. Search the whole house for yeast, for leaven, and every single bit of yeast or leaven, if they would, would find it, would have to be removed out of the house. That being said, we need to remember we cannot enjoy the feast of fellowship with Jesus Christ before taking the candle, if you will, the candle, and examining our hearts for sin and getting rid of it. Friends, we cannot have the benefits of fellowship without its responsibilities. Let's read on. Paul writes, as you really are. As you really are. In other words, you must live unleavened because you are unleavened. What he's saying is this, be what you are is the basic message of the New Testament for Christian living. In other words, what you are positionally, live out practically. Be what you are. Let's read on. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, what? Sacrificed. And what Paul is saying is this, Jesus Christ's death demands that the local church be holy in nature. Did you get that? Be holy in nature. And since, friends, we have, listen now, been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are to celebrate the feast by walking, get this now, by walking in a holy manner before God, not giving place to evil, not giving place to sin in our lives. G. Campbell Morgan said this, and I love it. The church pure is the church powerful. That's amazing. The church pure is the church powerful. If we as a church want to be powerful, then we must be pure. Move on, verse 8. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, that's the old yeast, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Right here, Paul Paul's defining what unleavened bread looks like in the church, and that is what? Sincerity and truth. Now, I want you to hear my heart, okay? And hear me out right now. God does not expect perfect holiness or absolute purity, but he does expect that we as Christians, we as a church, deal with our sins in sincerity and truth. In other words, friends, that we there's openness and honesty about the sin in our lives. These are two strong guardrails for the way of the Christian life. Can I get an amen? The problem, the process, the purpose. And number four, number four is the principle. Write that down, say that, the principle. And here we see the principle or the rule, we can say the rule regarding judging others. Verses nine and 10, stay with me now. Paul writes, I have written you in my letter to not associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, that means intimate association with them. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, Paul says, you would have to leave this world. So, so Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthian believers, which we don't have. There's some of the letters that Paul wrote that are not in here. And maybe he wrote another letter to the Corinthians. It could be, actually, it could have been 1 Corinthians. We don't know that. But we have 1st, 2nd, it could have been 3rd. We don't know that, okay? But he wrote a, a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. But apparently, in that previous, previous excuse me, letter, he evidently said something about not associating or mixing it up with immoral people. And the Corinthians, 
The Corinthian believers took it to mean that they were not to have any, anything to do with the unsaved people who lived immoral lifestyles. And what they did, they wrongly thought they were, were to have no contact, no dealings, no associations with unsaved people whatsoever. And what Paul is really saying, he was saying to them in that other letter, don't expect godly behavior from ungodly people. Okay, they're just, that's what they do. And to disassociate from sinners, Paul is saying, in a sinful world would mean that you would have to go out of the world. That's impossible. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Friends, it shouldn't surprise or offend us that those who do not yet know Jesus Christ are immoral, greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. That's what they do. That's their job description. They're just living the way they're living. They're, they're, they're living in sin. And you see, Paul's not advocating isolation from the world. He's not, listen, he's not advocating spiritual social distancing. As Christians, we must have contact with the world if we're going to reach the unsafe for Jesus. And Jesus demonstrated that in the Gospels. He had contact with the world. He wanted to reach out, but Jesus always set the agenda, not them. He set the agenda. He wanted them to come to the kingdom of God. Now, again, we are in the world, right? But not of the world. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said this, As Christians, we are not to be isolated, but separated. We cannot avoid contact with sinners, but we can avoid contamination by sinners. That's powerful. Now, the unsaved, and we know this, right, may have habits which are offensive to us, but they must be reached. They're, listen, they're not the enemies. They're not the enemy. They are the mission field. They're the mission field. Now, what seems to be happening here is that the Corinthian believers were isolating themselves from the world, from non-believers, but tolerating sin from believers. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. In other words, someone who claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, you know, this is, this is not an exhaustive list. There's probably more to this. And he says, Which such, With such a man do not even eat. So the sins that Paul describes here, sexual, someone who's sexually immoral, greedy, an adulterer, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler, are introduced by a verb, listen, by a verb in the present test, tense, pres, present tense, suggesting an ongoing practice. And this would refer to someone who is making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, living in open, open denial of Christ by clinging, clinging to the very sins that Jesus died to save them from. So Paul says to the Corinthian believers, Paul's saying to us, all believers, to separate ourselves from the person who lives in open, unrepented sin. Don't even eat with such a person since to eat with someone is a strong expression of fellowship. Now, this doesn't mean we should treat the person as an enemy. It just means we, we can't welcome him or her into the fellowship unless and until the sin is discontinued and restoration is obvious. 
Now remember, this person has been warned, has been exhorted to repent, has refused to listen, therefore has been put out of the church, out of the fellowship. Now you are to have nothing to do with that person. And there are at least three reasons for this. Three reasons. Reason number one is this. So that sin will not contaminate the church. So that sin will not contaminate the body of Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. So that, so that the outside community will see that there's a difference between the church and the world. So that the outside community will see that there's a difference between the church and the world. And the third reason is this. So the pain of excommunication, the pain of excommunication will drive the sinning believer back to God. If you got it, say got it. If you're still with me, say amen. Verses 12 through 13a. Paul writes, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Verse 13a. God will judge those outside. Now, unfortunately, let's, let's be honest. Let's be honest. As Christians, we are so, so busy judging those outside of the church, which is God's job only, that we're neglecting purity within the church. The Corinthian believers were failing to judge where they should have made a judgment. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. If you said amen, listen, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, we have no responsibility for judging outsiders. We are not to judge them. We are to witness to them. Okay, Not judge them, but witness to outsiders. But we do have a responsibility to judge those who are within the church. We are not to judge the outsiders, but we are to judge those within the church, even those who claim to be a believer. If someone claims to be a believer, if they're living a certain way that's not right, and they say, well, I'm still, I'm a believer. If they claim to be a believer, then you have, listen now, the responsibility to judge them. In fact, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, there Jesus is not talking about not judging. He's talking about how to judge. He says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And just make sure you're clean before you judge someone else. Not only that, in John chapter 7, verse 24, John 7, 24, it says to judge with a righteous judgment. Judge with a righteous judgment. So we have a responsibility as long as we're clean, as long as we have taken the log out of our own eye, the plank out of our own eye, and as long as we're making a righteous judge, we have the right to judge those who are not living right. Got it? Verse 13b. And this is the end of the chapter. Expel the wicked man from among you. So what Paul does, Paul clinches the case for the removal of the offender. And this is the one who persistently and unrepentantly continues in sin after being warned. But our prayer... And our hope is that they would, what, come back and be restored to fellowship with God and fellowship with the body of Christ. Can I get an amen? Now, as I wrap this up, I want to share a few things with you. If, if we really love God, and if we really love God, if we really love His Word, we will want to honor God, honor Him 
with our lives. In fact, we will want that so much that if we should start to drift from His Word, we should want someone to tell us, to stop us, to help us, and to keep us from drifting and from stumbling. You see, friends, the place to start is not looking at others. It is so easy to look at the lives of others. The place to start is by looking into our own hearts, by looking into our own lives and asking ourselves, let's make this personal, asking myself the question, asking ourselves, myself, have I begun to drift from God's word? Asking myself, am I making excuses for sin? Asking myself, what sin am I tolerating in my life? Asking myself, has my language become coarse? Asking myself, what problem area do I need to address in my life? Asking myself, am I being consumed by the world or by the word of God? Asking myself, Am I taking sin seriously? Listen, cry out, we're family, right? We're family. And because we're family, because we're family, our job, listen now, is to look out for one another. Let me ask you something. Do you know someone right now? Do you know someone right now who is drifting away from God? Do you see someone right now who is headed for a fall? And if you do, are you willing to love that person enough to take them aside and say, I'm concerned about what's going on in your life? Love them enough to tell them you need to get it right. Love them enough to tell them, turn from your sin. Because you know what? That's real love. That's real love. And real love is discipline. And to discipline someone is to confront them about their sinful living. And one more thing. When someone has fallen and turned from their sin in repentance, it's up to us, the church, the church, to extend mercy, grace, forgiveness. Because our goal is to help someone get back on the path, right path, back in fellowship with God and back in fellowship with His Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we as a church, as a body of Christ, would live in a holy manner before you, that we would take sin seriously, that we would not tolerate it, that we would confront it, confess it, Lord, and, and repent from it so that the outside community will see that there's a difference between the church, us, the church, in the world. Father, cleanse us and, and wash us from our sin. If there's any lingering sin in our lives, we repent of it right now. Cleanse us and, and change us. Put us back on the right path. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, perhaps there's some of you who have been listening to this message and you're feeling a tug at your heart. That's the Holy Spirit of God calling you to himself.
pulling you to himself and you're feeling something in your heart and you're saying, you know what, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I, I want to surrender my life to him. You, you want to follow him. If that's you, then I want you to repeat, close your eyes and bow your heads and repeat this prayer after me, okay? Dear Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner and I need you and invite you to come into my life to save me, cleanse me, and change me. Lord, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me this day. And from this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you, and you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. Now, just a reminder, friends, don't forget April 4th, Easter Sunday, we'll be meeting in the church parking lot in our vehicles at 10 a.m., one service, 10 a.m., so put that down in your calendar, write that down in your calendar, remind yourself about that, and I just hope you have a, a wonderful Sunday, and I will see you next week. God bless you, love you all, miss you, take care.